America is warning that terrorists may try to smuggle bombs on flights bound for the Winter Olympics in Russia. The Department of Homeland Security has told airlines to look for explosives or at least explosive ingredients being hidden in tubes of toothpaste. Last month, Russia banned liquids, pastes and gels from its airports and internal flights. The Games officially open tomorrow. I'm joined by our defence analyst Christopher Lee and Professor Paul Rogers from the Department of Peace Studies at Bradford University. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Professor Rogers, sounds bizarre, but all threats are treated nowadays as though they're real, aren't they? They are, yes. I mean, it does sound bizarre, but the reality is that if you did have somebody succeeding in getting, say, two large tubes of toothpaste onto a plane and they actually had some kind of paste explosive, it could be very potent. Uh, So I think you have to take it seriously. And there is a concern over the Sochi Games because the problem of political violence in the North Caucasus has been considerable. It's not much reported in the West, but the Russians have had, I think it's over 1,200 officials killed in different sorts of terror incidents over the last 10 years. So it's actually a much bigger issue for them than perhaps is realised outside Russia. So does this latest warning prove that security of these games starts 5,000 miles away? Well, it does in a way. I mean, the Russians are putting immense forces into trying to control Sochi and the area around it. I think it's double the number of troops and police that London had for the much larger, more extensive and longer Olympics. So obviously they're making huge efforts and the feeling is that it's probably true that Sochi and the area around is about as secure as it can be. And this is why you have this warning coming from a a much more distant source. Christopher, this has come from the US homeland security people. is isn't about a threat on US soil, so why are they saying it? I mean, first and foremost, they are suppliers of information. They're suppliers of intelligence analysis. And it doesn't matter whether these games were taking in, in, in London. And when they did take place in London, the Americans were supplying the British with information intelligence analysis of what the threat and their threat assessment was for that. Second thing you've got to remember, this is an international sport, isn't it? An international meeting. Americans are involved in this meeting. They'll have their own security detail involved in this but it is the detail is important individually but it's extraordinarily important that you've got an international organization like the olympic committee running olympic games and if that goes wrong every mind nips back to the 1970s and the consequence of what happened in munich Mm. professor rogers i suppose this is a very public statement but for this one statement there must be lots that are not actually being disclosed Yes, I mean, with a focus on the Sochi Olympics, you will find that there will be huge amounts of information going, and as Christopher was saying, from many different sources, uh, a lot of it from countries that are adjacent to the Caucasus, others that are experiencing their own problems, because in some ways, although the Russians are insistent that this is an internal problem, they have to face the fact that it has a much wider international aspect to it. And so, yes, it's something where there's a lot going on behind the scenes,
means because of the incredible efforts that the Russians are going to. Christopher. The other thing that's happening is certainly in London, they're talking about this, the intelligence people are telling the Russians, but telling everybody else now. Uh, if you want to hit Sochi games, you're actually trying to hit Putin, perhaps. You do not go necessarily, if you're a terrorist, you do not hit in Sochi. You hit, yes. you hit elsewhere. Sochi. No, it could be in London. You're making the point that the threat <clears throat> is, is, is centred, it's got a flag over the top which says Olympics, but so you're you, showing hmm. you can strike anywhere. So is that warning that, that flights bound for Russia might be too narrow a warning? Could be flights bound anywhere? I think it's more likely to be flights bound for Russia. That seems to be the nature of the warning. But this is a, a very big event. It's really in some ways second only to either the main Olympics or something like World Cup football. And therefore, there's, there's worldwide attention on this. And uh, a political violence group uh, recognises this and wants to have some sort of impact if it can. If you, if you whack the Cosmos Hotel in Moscow... You've done the job, yeah. and that's mm. what they fear. Two US, uh, US has put two warships in the Black Sea, ready to offer help in case of a security emergency. Is that over the top, Christopher? No, it's not over the top, and the Russians wouldn't think that either. The chances are, if there was an emergency, I mean, in, in Odessa, the, the Russians have got all the assets they actually need. But the point is, it is saying, we are here if you should help. If you should need help, I suspect the Russians wouldn't ask for any help. But the point, it, it, the point is, it's got to be done that way. Something else is going on here, and that is NATO, for example, at the moment is saying, we need international cooperation on this. What we don't need is people sort of getting into a cocoon and saying, look, everybody else ought to stay out of it. And now, the weather. Apart from Sochi, the topic of conversation in the UK, even the forces are talking about it. We've seen Royal Engineers on relief operational assessments for local and national government and Royal Marines on mini flood rescues. But this isn't a parochial UK affair. It's global climate change. Or is it? What we do know is that governments are having to rethink what it means for future security. Professor Rogers still with us. Uh, this isn't about more rubbish weather, is it, this whole conversation? No, it's much more than that. I mean, you go back 20 years and the early climate change models were predicting for Britain that the west and south of the country would get warmer, wetter and windier and the east would get warmer, drier and windier. The emphasis on the wind, what seems to be happening worldwide is that as climate change really kicks in, it's not that you're getting more severe weather events, it's when they happen they're more severe. What were 100-year events are now tending to happen every 10 or 20 years and it will actually accelerate until we go seriously into decarbonisation. But no, in some ways what we're seeing now, and you look at the the, the, the huge wildfires in Russia, the appalling floods in Pakistan, and the recent typhoon that hit the Philippines, which recorded the highest wind speeds for any storm making landfall. They're all indicators, and they're rather like the canary in the, in the coal mine, warning of what climate change would mean if it gets out of control over the next 30 or 40 years. Every region affected, including the Arctic. Can you explain the issues there? One of the issues here is the Arctic, or what they technically call the Paleo-Arctic or Near-Arctic, is actually warming up faster than most other parts of the world, about twice the rate. And this is why you're getting the much bigger changes in things like Arctic sea ice, the beginnings of the melting of the Greenland ice cap. 
and the big possible problem, the melting of permafrost across Canada and Siberia, uh, releasing rotting vegetation, which releases methane, which adds to climate but change. in terms usually. of international relations, this is throwing up new and interesting issues, isn't it, between, between Russia and Canada? Well, the extraordinary thing is the Russians and Canadians actually benefit in the short term from climate change, uh, both because people in ag- agriculture can move north and also it opens up new supplies in the Arctic. They're also two very big uh, fossil carbon producers, oil and gas, and neither government currently, neither the Putin government nor the, the, the Harper government in Ottawa, are actually interested in saying that climate change is human-made because they're benefiting. That's actually, in my personal view, very bad news for the whole of the world, but it's where they're coming from. So, higher temperatures, more rain, climate change across the globe. How, how does that translate, Christopher, into violence and even warfare? Um, governments have got to rethink. That's the first thing. Uh, what does this mean for us? How do we sit there uh, and say, look, we don't know what's happening. Who do we believe? That's another thing. Um, you also get people on the move. When you get climate change on the, on the, on the rate we're already seeing this, you get a whole population start to move. You get... Uh, Uh, tensions between different groups in populations, for example, Christian uh, Islamists in Africa, etc. This is all to do with climate. Now, it's always been to do with climate. What's happening is it's been accelerated in the past, say, 50 years, certainly 100 years, where the uh, carbon emissions uh, are climbing at a rate never before seen, possibly since the beginning of the Industrial uh, Revolution. Interesting thing, I mean, Paul was saying there about uh, the uh, Siberian uh, permafrost melting, producing methane. Methane, although it doesn't go up in great quantities, is far more damaging than CO2, which is what we all talk about. We're having to rethink. And when you start rethinking like that, you get instability in government. You get instability in government. You therefore get not only warfare, but you get battlefare. Paul Rogers, without being alarmist beyond the environmental issue, what Chris was talking about, warfare there, a military issue, how should Britain's military be preparing for this future? Well, there are two things. One is they can prepare to try and uh, sort of prevent the effects becoming disastrous in, sing- in, in security terms, and, uh, and that may be trying to sort of induce stability in some countries. But the second problem is you can't close the castle gates. And my view against a personal view is that the senior military should actually be telling government that if government and the British and elsewhere let climate change get out of control, it gets to the point where the military cannot cope with it. And the military response probably has to be, you've finally got to be serious about carbon, cha- carbon uh, climate change and start the process of going to low-carbon economies. If senior military said that, it might possibly make government sit up. Nothing else thought. seems to work. Mm. Professor Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Sit rep with Kate Chabot. Still to come, the head of the Afghan army says he thinks an agreement to keep some NATO troops in Afghanistan will be signed. And we head to the snowy slopes of Meribel for the Inter-Services Skiing and Snowboarding Championships. This is BFBS SITREP. The EU's foreign policy chief, Catherine Ashton, has met Ukraine's President Yanukovych to discuss the country's ongoing political crisis. Anti-government demonstrators are continuing to protest, demanding curbs to the president's powers. The crisis will be debated in the European Parliament, which will call on a motion for sanctions to be imposed on Kiev. Christopher, just to bring us up to date with the situation at the moment in Kiev, then. Um, You have this opposition to... Um, President uh, Yanukovych. And the reason for that 
is that, uh, that the President Yanukovych appears to be moving um, almost entirely to the Putin camp in, in Moscow as far as the economy is concerned. You've got it in Ukraine, uh, a young, middle-class, well-educated, out-of-work uh, groupings, and they took to the streets, and therefore we see the bigger demonstrations. They wanted Yanukovych to, to sign up with the uh, e EU for benefits there. Now, he says that could happen. Now, we've then got a predecessor of Yanukovych, uh, 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 Kravchuk, saying we are heading for civil war. And if we're heading for civil war, it will not be contained within the boundaries of, of just uh, the Ukraine. The Ukraine is very much linked to the rest of Europe. Eastern though it may be, it's linked to the rest of Europe. And you will not be able to mm. contain that. And lots of cities, major cities, Germany, for example, in the United Kingdom, where you have Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainian diaspora, um, that will spread to there. And that's the huge problem at the moment. Yeah, linked to the rest of Europe, but a bit of a tug of war going on between... President Putin and the West over who can have an influence in Ukraine. That's What's right. What's at stake there? Well, uh, the, the most important thing is is the future of of, uh, of uh, Yanukovych himself, President Yanukovych, because as long as he maintains this hardline attitude, and hardline attitude which leads him to to Mr. Putin, then then there's not going to be a settlement within Ukraine. Therefore, the the, the so-called revolution will continue. I've got a bet on, at the moment, the way things are going, that Putin's got to make up his mind whether he buys into the whole idea of the, of the Yanukovych uh, leadership facing down the rebellion. I wouldn't mind betting that Putin is starting to have second thoughts about his boy uh, in, 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 in the Ukraine. And we may see him sidelined. We may see Yanukovych... And what would the spending, consequences be of that, then? Uh, you may then get the, re the re-emergence of Kravchuk in, 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 in the parliament. Um, you may see other people coming to the fore, but that will maybe cut quite in down. That will allow Putin also to say, I'm having nothing to do with this, and therefore the Ukrainians themselves saying, we will do deals with, with, with Putin's Russia, but most importantly, we'll sign up with the EU. And that is what all these great negotiations that are going on at the moment are all about. The MOD will be watching this closely, won't they? What will they be looking out for exactly? Oh, they, they will do three, three areas. One is, is, is home security. And that was because of the diaspora of the Ukrainians and other people who will say, listen, you supported uh, Kravchuk earlier, you supported Yanukovych now, you support Putin. And that sort of excites the, <coughs> the, 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 the homeland security sort of issues here. But the other thing is, the point I'm making about this being a European affair, this is not some far-off <coughs> land where you can say, look, we don't go in that, leave them to sort it out, leave it to the, uh, in the Middle East, it's just Islamists versus another Islamist group. This is how close it is. This is a European thing. We have a European defence issue within the EU, and we also have a European defence issue within NATO. So, therefore, it's right on the radar. Suppose um, there is civil war. At what point do you say there is civil war in Ukraine? And how could that spread? What do you see might be the consequences and the risks? Let's take Syria as an example, and it's not a, it's not a, it's not a good example because of the way it, it brought in outsiders. But also, the Ukraine will bring in outsiders. What you get is street protests. You get in the Tahrir squares we've had in Egypt type thing, which just will not go away. When you say outsiders, do, do you mean terrorists? What do you, uh, you, do you... Well, you know, just just the way, for example, that people uh, people go to Syria 
to take part in jihad. You will get uh, you will get the uh, people leaving this country and going to the Ukraine to take part in, in in that in that conflict. Now, it is the point it blows over into civil war is when the president, when the when the powers that be, the government has to say, listen, we can't confide confine this just to the capital city. We are now going to put troops on the ground. Mm. Then the people in protest, that moves from a street protest to an armed protest. And that's exactly what's happened so in Syria. The NATO Secretary-General has waded into this and his foe Rasmussen warning that nobody wants to return to the dividing lines and hostility of the past. Stop using the words and ways of the past and move forward. What, what's he worried about? He's worried about certainly uh, President Putin. President Putin is using what uh, what NATO thinks is sort of Cold War rhetoric. It's saying stay out. Now, this is Russian policy everywhere. You know, stay out of Syria, stay out of Afghanistan, stay out of uh, Iraq, etc. But he is using the sort of uh, language that exacerbates as far as NATO is concerned, rather than using the Russian efforts to cool things down. Now, if... Uh, when Rasmussen, the NATO Secretary General, says something like this, he's not just coming off the top of his head. He knows something. It's after long consultations with Washington, London, uh, Bonn, uh, or Berlin, for example. That's why I've got a feeling they know something, they're anticipating something, and, I, and that's why I think that it's a face-off now, not so much between on the streets at, of Kiev. It's a, it's a face-off between um, the so-called Western powers and Putin. And if Putin shows any sign of dropping his guard on his boy in, in Kiev, we know we're moving towards a, a, a cooling of the whole situation. And that's what NATO's gambling on. All right, Christopher, stay with us. The head of the Afghan army has told BFPS he's confident that a security agreement allowing NATO troops to stay in Afghanistan beyond this year's withdrawal date will be signed by his government. He also expressed his condolences to the families of British troops who lost their lives in the country. General Sher Mohammed Karimi and the Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Peter Wall, both spoke to BFPS reporter Julie Knox at the International Armoured Vehicles Show in Farnborough. We do uh, hope that uh, the support will continue and we are happy and very confident and optimistic for the future that the international community, particularly UK, US and these uh, big nations are on our side uh, for the democracy in Afghanistan, for the welfare of the people of Afghanistan. So my message to, uh, to the people of Great Britain, to the families who lost loved ones in Afghanistan, I present my condolences and we appreciate their sacrifices and I hope that uh, they realize that they are helping a nation who have been in fight for 35 years uh, and uh, they, I think they deserve your support. They deserve the support of the British families, the British people and, uh, and they've done that. And uh, uh, we will never forget that and that's uh, something that will, uh, the legacy of this, uh, your sacrifices will stay in the history of Afghanistan and the hearts of the people, uh, which is very, very important from my point of view. In terms of having to do it for yourself and having perhaps to pay for it yourself as well in the future, um, are you a little worried that if your president doesn't sign the invitation for the support and mentoring mission to continue beyond next year, you might be in that position sooner than you might have hoped? We see, I can say that uh, uh, the president or our government uh, they have realized this uh, importance of these issues. Uh, I am uh, fully confident and uh, optimistic that it will be signed. 
General Wall, can I have one question to yeah, you, if sure. you don't mind? Um, the state, I suppose, of the British Army, equipment-wise, especially maybe looking to years ahead when you won't have UOR money to, to provide the stuff that you've been getting over recent years? Yeah, we've benefited hugely from the uh, UOR fleet that has been driven by our experiences in Afghanistan and the sorts of threats we've been facing there. Uh, we now have to spend some of the Army's money to get that into our core programme. Those vehicles are being taken off the ground gradually this year. Um, obviously, we're leaving the ones that have to stay uh, throughout the rest of the operation. And we're working them uh, back into um, a sort of renovated and standard format to be reissued to our forces, primarily in the adaptable force units that will be part of the lighter end of our operational spectrum. Meanwhile, the, uh, the core programme looks good to me. Uh, particularly in the armoured vehicle pipeline, which will see the Scout programme and the Warrior Upgrade programme uh, gaining a lot of momentum in the next three or four years. And then after that, we're hoping we'll be able to buy a uh, util utility vehicle, which will eventually start to replace um, the UOR vehicles like Mastiff, uh, probably about the end of this decade. So we're in reasonable shape. Thank you. And do you continue to think that, even though I think you said maybe that we've um, relied quite a lot on keeping things going beyond their lifetime, really? Well, we've become past masters at, uh, at uh, extending the life and utility of our vehicles and adapting, adapting them to functions for which they were not necessarily originally designed. But we're about to get a fresh start. We've got to reach the end of that cycle with the uh, vehicles like Bulldog, CVRT, um, uh, going out of service. We'll see Warrior upgraded to a completely new generation, the Scout vehicle coming in, uh, and you, the wheeled utility vehicle will be a departure from what we've tended to do in the past. So I think uh, we're about to go through a recapitalization, a big reset, We've got an awful lot of operational experience to draw on in order to do this. A lot of the companies who are here today are giving us um, lots of uh, advice and benefit from their new technologies and subsystems and so on, both in the physical space with armour, also in the electronic space with uh, architectures and so on. So I'm pretty optimistic we can do a good job here. General Sir Peter Wall talking to our reporter Julie Knox. Uh, Christopher, we heard from the head of the Afghan army, General Karimi, earlier. Um, what do you make of what he had to say? I think it's... Uh the whole thing, it depends upon the outcome of the election. There are 11 candidates in that election. What you need to do about how long you keep troops there, uh, how you sign things and don't sign things and what they mean in practice will depend entirely upon that election and who will, and which is which is now started. I tell you, there's a nice irony here, isn't there? Out of all those 11 candidates in the election in Afghanistan, uh, guess what they've been given for their security? Go on. Armoured vehicles. <laughs> armoured vehicles. And when they patched up armoured vehicles, which maybe ones? warrior, you know, warrior, what they're not getting is the WUV, which is the, which mm. is the new generation, which I think we'll probably see around in 30 years' time. Interesting, though, that over the next two months, it really, really will, what happens in Afghanistan, the political level as well, will really decide Britain's continued presence there or not. Yes, it will. And what the, what the Foreign Office, what the MOD, because the MOD gets far more involved in the politics. Uh, we're looking for the numbers. There are, what, four major groups in Afghanistan. And the biggest group, of course, is, is the Pashtun, then the Tajik, Hazara, and the Uzbeks. But it's the Pashtun, 42%. If you want to run Afghanistan peacefully, 
you've got to sign up for the Pashtun. Abdullah, Abdullah is the man to watch. The second part of it is what happens in Pakistan. And therefore you get the talks about Taliban that are going on at the moment, have just started at the moment, have an enormous effect. That's what MOD will be looking for. And they say that will decide whether we stay, go or linger. The Inter-Services Skiing and Snowboarding Championships are underway in Meribel. John Knighton is there for BFPS and joins us from the slopes. Hello, John, how's it going? Good afternoon to you, Kate. Yes, uh, very well indeed here, having a fantastic week of uh, brilliant uh, winter sports here for the skiers, the telemarkers, and the snowboarders are actually engaged in their competition just as we speak at the moment, which is slope style, which is actually paralleling what's happening at the Winter Olympic Games in Sochi. Uh, We've had lots of competition so far, and it's fiercely intense competition. I can tell you that at the moment, uh, in the skiing, for example... 0.2 of a second separates the top men in the RAF and uh, the army uh, as we go into these last races over the next couple of days. Mm. It's also been very important as well because a lot of senior officers have uh, been out here to lend their support to their individual uh, teams, Army, Navy and RAF. The Chief of the Air Staff is here at the moment, uh, Air Chief Marshal Sir Andrew Crawford. And the Chief of the Defence Staff as well has been here, uh, General uh, Sir Nicholas Horton. He's been coming here for the last six years. I met up with him just a a couple of days ago uh, to talk about really why he's here and really giving his support to Forces Sport. He says that with the the possibility of the tempo of operations reducing over the next few years, and who knows whether that will actually happen or not, sport could play a growingly important part. I think sport and adventure training across the armed forces is absolutely vital. I mean, uh, in our own way, we all love operations, but... um, Sport is not just enjoying sport in its own right. It is the read across into challenge and adventure and team building. And to be honest, this is what it's all about. So um, now, I hope we never have the day come along when we can't do this sort of thing on a regular basis. We're just a week away from the, uh, the start of the Winter Olympics and we have no less than seven British servicemen and women competing there, one at the Paralympics as well. And some of them hone their skills at these championships, which says it all, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I mean, um, the days the days have gone now when lots of elite athletes were in the armed forces. Because nowadays, if you want to be a professional rugby player, go and play professional rugby, and that's the way it's got to be in a way. But I think certainly uh, winter sports is still one of those areas where the armed forces have a niche because we can provide really serious competition within the armed forces which nudges into our national level sports people and uh, so I am delighted but not surprised that we've got quite a few servicemen and women uh, going to those Winter Olympics. John the Chief of Defence Staff he's a fan isn't he is he a skier? Uh, he is, yeah, he's very much a skier and very much into all winter sports. And don't forget that we have these championships here in Meribel, Kate, but also the uh, the ice sports uh, happen in uh, Eagles in Austria in a few weeks' time. That's all the bobslayers and the skeleton and whatever. And these, of course, are the people who have been representing uh, Great Britain at uh, the Winter Olympics. Mm. And we've also got... Um, you know the Paralympians as well, and uh, Mick Brennan as well. Is uh, who's will be here actually. In fact, he's arrived here in uh, the in Maribel today. I'll be talking to him as well tomorrow as he heads towards uh, Sochi. Ten years after he was blown up by an IED in Iraq and lost both his legs, and that is a, an extraordinary achievement for him to be competing at uh, this level. Briefly, briefly, John, you, you've been mixing with royalty as well, haven't you? 
Yes, had a, a, a chance to speak this morning to uh, Her Royal Highness the Countess of Wales, who's taken over as uh, the uh, new patron of the Combined Services Winter Sports Association. She's really excited about uh, the role, the new role that she's going to have, and has been seeing a lot of these sports uh, for herself here, and again, sees the importance of sport uh, in the forces community, and also being able to compete mm. at the very highest level. All right, John, enjoy the rest of it. Thanks very much for that. Um, Christopher, before we go, I guess, I guess you're not a skier, are you? Certainly not. <laughs> Actually, okay. I did. I did the Arctic warfare course, so I suppose that's the same thing. <laughs> you would have done. I would have done. You would have done. Let's I talk. I had a parrot at the time. Let's, she did it with me. Let's Astonishing. Talk. <laughs> Norman, he was called. You put these images that are difficult to get out of your head sometimes. Let's talk about warfare in terms of developments this week. The MOD unveiled its top secret, Tyrannus. What is, what is this exactly, this well, drone? Well, we're, we're, back we're back into the drone drone yes. uh, thing. Well, at we the moment. told off as saying drone, weren't we? Yeah. Well, mm. we yeah, well th this is an astonishing thing, isn't it? I mean, it, it, one of the most successful weapon systems uh, developed in the past, say, 15, 20 years, uh, and yet already the, the political effects of it uh, the fact that it, it, it's it's silent, it's secret, it's unmanned, it takes out targets, you have so-called collateral damage. Already people are rather embarrassed that it's so, so good. How, how significant is this one? I think it's, it's significant because the United Kingdom is very much in the business of running its own drone operations. And this is what, if you go up to uh, RAF stations, and that's what you find now, it's a, it's a new task. Mm. Tell us about uh, what's going on in Egypt. Egypt, uh, two things. I mean, one, we're moving towards the idea of uh, uh, an election concerning the referendum and also the fact that, of the new president. Chief of Defence Staff? going to run because his army supports him but the most amazing thing is the american working group on egypt is saying to obama do not go soft on these guys on egypt don't just sign up for them otherwise it'll be turn fatal and that's all we have time for this week my thanks to all of our guests if you'd like to join the debate we're on twitter you can tweet us at bfbs sitrep remember you can listen again to the program on our website bfbs.com slash sitrep thanks for listening speak to you next week bye bye Sports, sports and music, music for the British forces. This is B.